nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. I got to tell you, it's great to be back. I was gone for a few weeks, uh, a little vacation time, a little sharpening of the saw, if you will. But it's good to be back with you. I got a lot to talk about today. Um, a little later in the show, I'll share a few thoughts that I came up with while on vacation that really have not much of anything to do with anything, but feel like sharing them. Also, a little bit later in the show, Ken Klukowski from the First Liberty Institute going to be joining me. Interesting things happened this week on free speech. In fact, a huge thing happened this week on free speech, and not in a good way. So we'll talk to uh, Ken Klukowski about that a little bit later. You know, it's I, I think of this about every week that uh, I'm getting sick of politics. This last week it was Donald Trump making some comment about NRA members or people who believe in the Second Amendment. And, of course, the press and Hillary jumped all over that, that he's inciting violence and wants to assassinate Hillary and that kind of stuff. And, and it's just beyond stupid. So I'm going to kind of ignore that today as, as I try to ignore it every day. But uh, let's get in a little bit of economics. Some other very interesting news came out this week that President Obama has been touting for quite a while, and that is that real wages, real hourly compensation, President Obama, according to his numbers, increased 4.2% year over year. And that's a big deal, if it was true. But the Department of uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics came out and said, well, you know what, we're going to revise those numbers. Instead of plus 4.2% year over year, it's really negative 0.4%. So that's a 4.6% swing in a year. And now, wouldn't wouldn't you and I uh, both love to revise numbers seven, eight months after the fact? Well, you know what, we, we said it was up 4.2, but it's really down 0.4%. A lot of people made decisions and drew conclusions about the economy and their investing and their future based on those numbers. And now they've been revised to the tune of a tenfold change and not in a good way. 4.2 positive, 2.4 negatives. Now that's a big, big swing. I'm waiting to see how uh, President Obama spins that, although I haven't seen much of anything uh, this week mentioned in the mainstream media about this. So it'll probably just simply be ignored. Very few people read these kind of reports. Uh, I do because I got nothing else to do. But uh, that's a big move, and I'll bet they ignore it. 
In addition this week, uh, a big study came out that said uh, uh, one in six or one in seven Americans uh, have a negative net worth. And these kind of go hand in hand. If you're not making enough money, uh, you're going in the wrong direction. But it, it was interesting, and I, and I dug into these numbers a little bit for you. You know, there's really two ways in this country to uh, be poor. And the first is just simply not earning very much money. And about, uh, about 15% of Americans earn below the national poverty level. Now, that doesn't mean they're broke. Um, I have seen many people that didn't earn a lot of money throughout the year, but are actually in pretty good shape financially. I've said for a long time, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. But uh, about 15% of the, the population, about 47 million people live below the poverty line. Now, this is according to the Census Bureau. So uh, given the, the accuracy of... Uh, statistics and numbers coming out of the federal government will we'll take it with a grain of salt but for the the sake of this discussion we'll assume it's correct the second way of being poor in this country is to uh, have a lot of debt and what i call a lot of bad debt but uh, these are people with uh, pretty good jobs uh, pretty good income but they got a lot of debt a lot of debt credit cards uh, student loans, mortgages, um, and and when you add up all their assets, all their cash, that kind of stuff, and you subtract out all their debt, you have a negative number. You have a negative net worth. And once again, doesn't mean they're living a bad life. It just means they have a negative net worth. Now, overall, in the United States, households have a little over twelve trillion dollars in debt. Now this is up yeah, about 10% from 2013, but it's below the 2008 peak before the the big crash in in real estate. And a lot of it, most of it is geared toward credit card debt and student loans. Student loans between 2008 and 2016 Student debt went from $590 billion to $1.26 trillion in just eight years. Eight years, it doubled. And that, coupled with credit cards, is a major uh, factor in people having negative net worth. Of the people that have positive net worth, there's a lot of characteristics around them. Um, most of them have a college degree. Uh, one in eight have a graduate degree. They have a little bit higher income, as you would expect. And they're a little bit older. People with negative income, the average age is 43. Uh, a negative net worth, rather. Positive net worth, the average age is 51. So uh, getting older will not make you richer necessarily if only that were true um, but those are the characteristics 
that revolve around that, but it's of the negative net worth people, the vast majority of them, by the way, it's it's about 14% of the population, so about one in seven, the vast majority of them have a lot of money out on credit cards, generally over $10,000, and significant student loans. So those are the two things. Now, I'm somewhat hesitant to bring that up because the next thing you know, politicians will be looking at those two things and wanting to fix it. We've already seen the Democrat uh, candidate want to eliminate or forgive student loans. Bernie Sanders wanted to make all college free. Well, nothing's free. We know that. But there are characteristics that um, people have that keep them broke or keep them from accumulating and building wealth versus the people who generally are able to increase their wealth year over year over year. And we can't blame it on the economy. Um, not entirely on the economy anyway. It, uh, it is affected by economic situations, but more on how people react to the economic situation than it is the economic situation in and of itself. Up next, I'm going to give you the key to creating wealth. You want to become wealthy? There's a very, very simple key to creating a lot of wealth. I'll give you that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Okay, so what's the key to getting wealthy in America? What's the key? It's very simple. Very simple. It's not easy. Understand that. But it is simple. I've said for a long time, I've said many, many times, there's only two things in life. Time and money. And if you don't have enough of one, you need more of the other. Well, the key to building wealth is, new study out this last week, patience. Patience. You need to build wealth over a long period of time. We've become a five-second society, and people want instant gratification. They want what they want, and they want it now. They're not disciplined enough. They're not patient enough to get things over time. If you look at people over the age of 50 who have that positive net worth, there's two main assets that they hold. The first is a home. 75% of the people that had a positive net worth owned their own home. Now, the, the, the way you build value in a home is by paying off the mortgage. I know it sounds oversimplified, but that's the key. And the way you pay off a mortgage is one month at a time. 
Well, you talk to people in their 20s and the 30s today, and nobody wants to accept the fact that it takes 20, 25, 30 years to pay off their house. But that's what it takes. You got to pay it off a month at a time. Most of the people over the age of 50 own their own home, and most of the people over age 60 have no mortgage. So they've paid off their home. They've built that wealth over time. 2008 crisis comes along for real estate. Housing dives. The value of real estate tanks because it was in a bubble. Who got hurt? Who got hurt? The people that had a mortgage that was close to the value of their home before the fall or people that didn't have a mortgage. Now, I'm sure that my house um, went down in value in 2008, 2009, same as everybody else's. But you know what? It didn't matter to me for two reasons. One, I wasn't planning on moving, so I didn't want to sell it. And two, I have no mortgage. So the value of my house, according to the market, is pretty much meaningless to me. I don't care. It changes my net worth. It changes my financial statement. But it really doesn't affect anything. The other main asset that most people have that have a positive net worth are, is, their retirement plan. Well, how do you build a retirement plan? How do you build a lot of money in your 401k? Simple. Every paycheck, money comes out goes into the 401k, it's invested in there pre-tax, and it's invested before you can spend it. So you don't really notice it. So people who have a positive net worth have done those two things very diligently. They've saved money over a long period of time, a little bit at a time, and let it grow. They didn't try to get rich quick. They knew it was going to take time. Now, that being said, in order to be able to pay a mortgage, in order to be able to save in your 401k, you have to create more value for people than what you cost people. In a very simple term, when it comes to wages, you know, the the uh, uh, presidential candidates are talking about minimum wage, and especially Hillary talking about $15 an hour. Bernie was talking about $15 an hour. Well, that's okay if you can create $20, $25, $30 an hour of value for your employer. But by creating a minimum wage of $15, you're essentially passing a law prohibiting somebody from having a job and getting paid. Now, why do I say this? Because if someone is not qualified, either through skill set or education, to create $25, $30 an hour in value to an employer... They simply won't get hired. 
because no employer is going to pay them $15 an hour if they're only worth 9 or $10 an hour. Now, my experience over a long career in the financial industry is that wealth is created by systematically saving money, not necessarily by how much money someone makes. So I have seen school teachers that never made more than $35,000, $40,000 a year, and they retire, and they've got seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars saved up. Well, they just did it over time very slowly. So it's only two things in life, time and money. And if you don't have enough of one, you need more of the other. But you and I have a little time. I have less than some. I have more than some. But even today, I'm still saving money. I'm still putting money away. I plan on living a while and I will need those assets in the future. My dad always said you want to reach a point where your money is working harder for you than you are for your money. And that's another bit of wisdom to take with you. The only way money can work harder than you is if you save it and let it accumulate. Now, since World War II, economic times have changed tremendously. We got zero interest rates out there. We got a goofy market. We got international issues, all kinds of stuff. But there is always a way of making your money work harder for you and accumulating that wealth. So remember, Patience is the key. Discipline is the tool to creating a lot of wealth. Up next, Ken Klukowski is a senior counselor and director of strategic affairs for First Liberty Institute. Going to be joining me. Very important aspect of free speech. Change this week. I'll talk about that next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Ken Klukowski. He's a senior counsel and director of strategic affairs for First Liberty Institute, specializing in cases involving the First Amendment and freedom of belief and expression. Ken, welcome to An Economy of One. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time and coming with us. I wanted to talk to you. I, I told my producer to give you a call. I read a couple articles in the last oh, day or so about this new ethics rule that the uh, American Bar Association is putting out. And uh, your name was brought up in, in several articles and, and quoted and that kind of stuff. So we wanted to give you a call. Most of my listeners, I haven't talked about this. I've just teased them that uh, I think it's very, very, very important. Give us your impression of this new ethics rule and kind of describe what it is for us. 
Well, that's right. Uh, the American Bar Association has Monday night adopted uh, Model Rule 8.4, which makes it a legal ethics violation, which means it's something for which you could lose your law license mm -hmm. as a lawyer, uh, to show bias or discrimination on the basis of, and then it gives a whole bunch of categories, not just race and sex, but also sexual orientation, gender identity, and socioeconomic status. Now, they go on then in their official comments to say that this rule will not be construed to prevent an attorney from being able to take on a client and represent that client. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the, the attorney's conduct, verbal conduct, meaning any words that come out of his mouth, and his business or social activities can be cited as evidence of a forbidden discriminatory bias. So social activities, he's just out to dinner with friends, and they're uh, talking about with friends. gay marriage or something, and he expresses an opinion, and boom, he's in an ethical problem. Or, or, or he could say that uh, he, he thinks this Black Lives Matter movement, that these protests are not good for law enforcement, that could be cited as race discrimination. He could say that he opposes amnesty for illegal aliens, that could be both race discrimination and socioeconomic discrimination. Uh, or if he is a member of a Southern Baptist church and is mm -hmm. teaching Sunday school and something comes up about marriage or sexuality, or if he raises abortion, if he takes a pro-life position, someone could say that, that's, uh, that that is discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, or in the case for abortion, discriminating on the basis of sex, so discriminating against women. Teaching a Sunday school class on one of these moral issues could be made evidence against him before the state's highest court saying that his law license needs to be revoked and he needs to be placed under a lifetime ban from earning a living as a lawyer. That's incredible. Now, that being said, the ABA passed this rule. Do the state bar associations now have to approve it, or is it kind of rubber uh, stamped great, great through? Question. The, the ABA is a private organization. Less than one-third of America's 1.3 million lawyers belong to the ABA. Uh, like countless others, I am not an ABA member because of the extreme liberal bias of that okay. private organization. However, it steps into the government in two critical ways. One is that every state – the bar is a department of each state's highest court, its Supreme mm -hmm. Court. It's, mm -hmm. it's the court – it's the state's high court that decides who can practice law in that state. They all have ethics rules. Many states adopt any ABA model ethics rule word for word. They just rubber stamp it. Those that don't fashion their rules off of the ABA model rules. So first of all, uh, this – this rule being adopted all but guarantees that at least some states, a number of states, will adopt it as a legally binding requirement for every attorney within the borders of that state. Second, in, in all but a handful of states, in order to be qualified to sit and take the bar exam in that state, you must, among other things, have a law degree from an ABA-accredited law school. Mm. One of the requirements that the ABA requires for a school to be accredited is they have to teach an ABA-approved legal ethics class. And since the ethics rules vary from state to state, every law school nationwide – 
In that ethics class, they're teaching the ABA model rules, which will now include Rule 8.4. Now, why would attorneys do this to themselves? I mean, surely the, the rules committee or whoever at the ABA understands the ramifications of this, don't they? I, this is going to blow your mind. Your listeners need to go to firstliberty.org. They need to read the five-page letter that former U.S. Attorney General Ed Mace yep. and the president of First Liberty Institute, Kelly Shackelford, the letter that they sent to the ABA leadership while they were debating this matter. In that letter, we quote ABA leaders during the debate stages where they make crystal clear that they deliberately intended this outcome, that they have a far-left perspective on these issues. They speak about the need of rooting out unacceptable bias and wrong thinking out of the legal profession. This would, Not only did they know this would happen, they intended it to happen. And let me add that this is because lawyers, I say this is a lawyer. Lawyers are not very popular in our society. Right. There are there are there are two groups of people that suffer here. First is the lawyers. It doesn't matter. They don't have to be a religious liberty lawyer like me. If you do real estate law or insurance law, uh, nonetheless, if you're teaching a Sunday school class where one of these issues come up, you could you you could lose your career. You could lose your livelihood. But beyond that. Uh, if you are a Christian or a church or a person of faith who's being pursued by the government, like uh, like uh, two of our clients, Aaron and Melissa Klein, the Oregon cake bakers, oh, yeah. who yeah. declined who declined to do a customized cake for a gay wedding to celebrate gay marriage because they believe marriage is between one man and one woman. If you were looking around, let's say you're a liberal atheist lawyer. Uh, if if Aaron and Melissa come to you asking for you to please protect their rights in court. You're not going to want to touch them with a 10-foot pole because anytime you talk about your client's case outside the courtroom, you might lose your career for it. So this is designed not just to purge Christians out of the legal profession, but to make it almost impossible for people of faith to be able to get a good lawyer to protect them when their rights are being violated. Absolutely incredible. I I just happened to see today, did you see the... The the story out there about Judge uh, Ruth Neely out in Wyoming. Are you familiar with that case? I, I I am following the case very closely, but frankly, I've been doing TV and radio back to back for the past <laughs> ten hours. So oh, so it, we're not the first to call you. I'm surprised. It's <laughs> on, on, well, it's what, what uh, it's. I have been following it. What happened today with Judge Neely? Because I'm happy to respond to it. And as I was preparing for talking to you, I just came across this, and I thought, geez, this fits right in because she did nothing. And uh, it was kind of a trap that they put her in, and she she's going to have a well, tough time the rest of her life. Judge. Yeah. What, what she was. Now, the, the important thing about that judge, and again, this is the same militant, no holds barred, no tolerance, no accommodation mm-hmm. that the LGBT left is pushing. Uh, far liberals on this. This is why Attorney General Mee said that this rule, this ABA model rule, is nothing short of fascist Mm -hmm. because it's being designed to destroy people's careers and to silence a whole segment of our society from having access to the courts. Judge Neely, as a city judge, she's not even involved in marriages. She has never issued a marriage license of any type during during her entire career. She was just asked what her view was regarding that. She expressed her Christian view that marriage is between a man and a woman. And now you see that this person 
of, of a, a city judge, a kind of judge who doesn't even issue marriage licenses, that now she is, according to what you've just told me, that she is going to be kicked off the bench, can no right. longer be a judge uh, administering justice to people and, for that matter, earning a paycheck to support herself and her family. I would hope that this is one item that everyone can agree on. We don't want to be a society where any productive adult is unable to make a living so that they can put food on the table, own a home, put put clothes on the backs of their children. Uh, it, this should be something that people who aren't even very concerned about these issues, and maybe they don't even care for conservative politics of any sort, faith-based or otherwise, everyone should be able to agree that if you're an intelligent, capable person who managed to get a law degree and go on to the legal profession or become a judge or whatever, we want you to be a, 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 a productively employed person who is contributing to the economy. We do not want you on a lifetime of government payroll benefits because you are unable to hold a job simply because of your religious or political beliefs. We're speaking with Ken Klukowski. He's a senior counsel and director of strategic affairs for First Liberty Institute, specializing in cases involving a First Amendment and freedom of belief and expression. Ken, we got about a minute or so left uh, in, in thinking about this. And thinking how things have gone in, in recent years in this country and, and how the natural evolution of, of laws and, and stupidity goes through our society, I started to think about, well, if this goes through and everybody adopts it, what's the next profession whose license could be threatened because of what they say, what they believe in their own personal life? I mean, isn't this just a like the first step of a very, very slippery slope? It is. It reminds me, when I was in Israel at uh, the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, uh, mm-hmm. it's a uh, museum, I remember a quote there from a pastor where he said, when they went after the socialists, I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Gives a couple other categories, and then it says, when they came for the Jews, I did not speak out because I am not a Jew. Mm-hmm. When they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. Right. Uh, right. And it is, you're absolutely right that when you're dealing with a fascist mentality, with someone who says that they want to purge a whole segment of our population from economically productive society, there is no limiting principle to that. It is mm-hmm. a demand for complete conformity and uh, and a complete adoption of their views, again, on a whole host of issues. We've been talking about faith-based issues like, like uh, abortion, marriage, sexuality. But as I said earlier, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, law enforcement, mm-hmm. the war on cops, illegal aliens, amnesty. I mean, these broad – you can say – if you say you oppose an increase in the minimum wage, you can be charged with socioeconomic right. discrimination. I mean, it's, there's nothing you can talk about where the thought police would not be able to come after you and say, uh, and say, uh, not only can you not say that, you can no longer earn a paycheck right. and be a productive adult if you hold those beliefs. Well, and, and, and we will even follow you. We will even follow you to your church yeah. to see what you say there. You know, and, and and it's interesting because technically, once again, you take it to the extreme, which is not beyond the realm of possibility anymore. We all have a driver's license. That's a license from the federal government. And, you know, the day is coming when, you know, you might have to hold up your hand and take an oath at the DMV. 
to get your driver's license, you know. So, it is, uh, it, yeah, the, the right to interstate travel is right. a constitutional right, but the right to be able to use a powerful machine on the roads as the means to engage in travel, right. you're right. That's a privilege that's granted by the government, and they can start to impose conditions. I mean, who knows who where knows? it would end. The, right. the bottom line is it's antithetical to our free society. State Supreme Courts need to reject this rule, and the American people need to reject this kind of censorship that tries to discriminate against everyone's First Amendment rights. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you coming on in such short notice and, and giving us uh, your expertise and, and time on this. Like you said, you're quoted all over the place. You do a lot of writing and, and have been in many law review articles and, and Wall Street Journal, that kind of stuff. Well, so I really appreciate, I appreciate your time. your kind words so much. Absolutely. Your listeners, again, can check out all the details on this stuff at firstliberty.org. Because the truth is stranger than fiction here. You can't make this stuff up and yeah. you can't believe this is happening in this country but at firstliberty.org you'll see all the documents there showing you exactly what's going on excellent we'll put that up on our website and uh hopefully we can tap you on the shoulder again soon and and continue our conversation thanks for having me god bless thank you up next i'm going to give you some random thoughts that uh popped into my head during my vacation i'll share those with you next an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Generally speaking, every July I try to take anywhere from three to five weeks off. And uh, this year was no different. Uh, I took a lot of time off, got caught up on a lot of my reading and uh, just general stuff I wanted to do. And uh, during that time, I wrote down several several notes that I wanted to remember to share with you um, about different things that, that, that happened. The first is for, and foremost, I went to see the new Star Trek movie, Star Trek Beyond. Uh, I'm a Trekkie from way back when. I was uh, uh, one of the original watchers back in the 60s of Star Trek with uh, Leonard Nimoy and and William Shatner and DeForest Kelly and all those guys. Of course, I watched Second Next Generation. I watched uh, Voyager, uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, all the movies. So I, I got to watch it. Got to watch it. Got to watch it on big screen. But uh, I learned a lesson a while back on uh, Avatar. Remember Avatar? Great movie. And uh, all the editorials came out and said, oh, that was James Cameron, uh, very liberal movie, liberal undertones, that kind of stuff. So I didn't go to the big screen and see it. And I waited for DVD, I bought the DVD, watched it, really disappointed I didn't see it on the big screen. I believed the editorials, and uh, maybe there was an underlying message, but it was very entertaining. Star Trek, same way. They came out and said, oh, this is the one where Sulu is, uh, comes out as gay in the movie. And I'm thinking, oh, great. They're going to spoil that, that franchise. Well, here it is. Sulu gets off the ship at a space station. He greets a person who's male, carrying a little girl. He, carry, he kisses the little girl on the cheek, and they all turn around and walk away. That's it. They never say it's his partner. 
They never say she's his daughter. Nothing. It's three seconds in the movie. Now, did they intend to, to make a gay statement? Maybe. But it didn't take away from the movie. Loved it. So be careful what you read and what you hear about movies out there. You might miss some stuff. The other thing I noticed, I read the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. But uh, they got a liberal bias, but I don't care. If I owned a paper, I'd probably have a bias, too. And as long as I know that it's a liberal bias, it doesn't bother me. But one of the things that I always read is the bestseller list. New York Times bestseller list. This last week, I, I found something interesting, and that is their nonfiction bestseller list. Out of the top four, three of them have a very important characteristic. See if you can pick it up. Book number four on the New York Times bestseller nonfiction list is Armageddon by Dick Morris and Eileen McGann. The political strategist offers a game plan for how to defeat Hillary Clinton. Number three, Hamilton, The Revolution. It's a book uh, that uh, the uh, Grammy and Tony prize-winning musical is about. Number two, Hillary's America by Dinesh D'Souza. The conservative author and pundit warns of disaster if Hillary Clinton is elected president. And number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, Crisis of Character by Gary J. Byrne with Grant M. Schmidt. Former Secret Service officer claims to have witnessed scandalous behavior by the Clintons. So three out of four of the New York Times bestseller list, nonfiction last week, was about Hillary Clinton and not in a positive light. Very negative on Hillary. Now, once again, not making a judgment, just making an observation. I find that interesting. I don't think it gives us any insight in the election this year, but I find it interesting. Final thing I wanted to mention with you, concealed gun permits are up 215% under President Obama. 14.5 million new permits under President Obama. Every month for the last 16, 17 months, we've had record background checks. And while the concealed weapon permits are up for the public, 215% murder rate has dropped dramatically. Once again, proving our point, 6% of the adult population in the United States has a permit. Now, there are several states that don't require a permit. So that means even more people are carrying out there to protect us. I'm a concealed carry holder. I carry all the time. You should too. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our the views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.